Think back to the 2016 election, to the campaigns, the primaries, and then finally, election day. The presidential election was notable for many reasons, and one of the biggest was the way the race changed how we talked to and about each other. This evening, there are schools across this country sending urgent letters home with their students. This school in Pennsylvania, chants of white power. White power! The family leaves a local Jewish deli to find swastikas painted all over their car. Hate speech seemed pervasive. It was happening at schools, at dinner tables, on social media. It bubbled up in debates and policy discussions. And it left many in this country feeling unwelcome and afraid. Police in Washington state are investigating a suspected hate crime against a U.S. citizen of Indian descent. New York descent. City, an Army veteran who police say is an admitted white supremacist, has been charged with murder as a hate crime in the stabbing death of a black man. A deadly shooting near Kansas City and a mosque fire in Tampa are both being investigated as possible hate crimes. Across the country, many journalists were turning over the same question. Are we seeing new levels of hate speech and crime in the U.S.? Or did the election just shine a brighter spotlight on a very old problem? The FBI typically reports between something like five and 7,000 hate crimes a year, um, but a Bureau of Justice Statistics survey has estimated that that number could actually be closer to a quarter of a million. So in short, we had no clue. ProPublica decided to do something about that. They formed a coalition of newsrooms and journalists to track and report on hate. Stories from the project have been running in outlets nationwide. On today's episode, Irie's Emily Hopkins talks with Rachel Glickhouse of ProPublica and Jessica Weiss of Univision News about the collaboration and the experience of documenting hate in America. I'm Blake Nelson, and you're listening to the Irie Radio Podcast. Around the time of the election, Univision's Jessica Weiss noticed something troubling. Communities across the country were experiencing what seemed to be an increase in hate incidents. These are things like harassment and intimidation that don't always amount to something criminal. Jessica watched some of this abuse unfold online, in real time right before her eyes. Other cases came to her through local news reports, like a series of swastikas painted on homes and buildings across the country. Even in our own newsroom, actually, I remember talking to a reporter here who somebody had said a sort of a slur to him on the street here in Miami. We were thinking about it and, and witnessing it and experiencing it, but we didn't have sort of this central repository uh, to point to to say, but look, here are you know hundreds of incidents that we've seen from so-and-so place, from as far as California to Florida to Maine. Hate crimes in America are nothing new. The federal government has been counting them for more than two decades. But that data just isn't capturing the whole picture. The FBI doesn't track things that aren't criminal. And what constitutes a hate crime can vary from state to state. The numbers get even more dicey when you consider that law enforcement agencies aren't required to report hate crimes to the FBI. 
So even the numbers for the most serious hate-involved cases are way off. The FBI typically reports between something like five and 7,000 hate crimes a year, um, but a Bureau of Justice Statistics survey has estimated that that number could actually be closer to a quarter of a million per year. So there's obviously a huge gap there. That's Rachel Glickhaus, the partner manager for a ProPublica project called Documenting Hate. Like Univision and many other newsrooms across the country, ProPublica noticed the uptick in hateful incidents around the time of the election. They also noticed how terrible the data was and wanted to address the lower-level incidents that were going uncounted by law enforcement. And we had just finished at ProPublica um, a big collaborative project called Election Land, working with newsrooms around the country to identify problems voting uh, on Election Day and leading up to Election Day. Even if you don't follow ProPublica closely, you may have noticed Election Land when it was running last fall. Stories from the project showed up in publications across the country. In March, the Google News Lab released a short documentary about the project. The great thing about social media and technology is that we have tons of information. The problem is that there's almost too much, and you don't know what's verified, what's true, what's misinformation. We're sorting signal from noise. All those tips are being brought in. Professional journalists are then looking at where they came from, who the source was. Well, they were able to verify it. It would help if we could find out where it was. Yeah, I think it's in the Philadelphia area because I've got a link to uh, Philadelphia at the Before moment. Before you put it in, can yeah. you just double check? In addition to the 450 journalists reporting for over 250 news organizations across the country, Electionland brought in over 700 journalists and journalism students to help verify tips. These leads were then fed to partner reporters who would continue to investigate and turn the leads into stories. Which brings us back to documenting hate. After election land wrapped up, Rachel said ProPublica's deputy managing editor, Scott Klein, got an idea. Uh, his idea was to model the election land project and to create a new project tracking hate incidents um, in the United States using the same model of working with newsrooms around the country um, and putting all of these incidents into a central database that reporters could use uh, to follow up on tips. Documenting hate works in a similar way. Rachel oversees more than 100 news organizations who agreed to be part of a national coalition to cover hate incidents. Tips come in through the Documenting Hate website and through partner publications. Rachel monitors the central database at ProPublica where all the information is stored. Essentially, the life cycle is... The incident comes into the database, either I send it out to a reporter or a reporter looks for it and decides to report on it and then usually produces a story. The database allows Rachel and the documenting hate reporters to keep track of which tips have been verified, who's working on a story, and which tips are still up for grabs. But it's not all about laying claim to the biggest lead. Publications that would normally be competing are often collaborating and even sharing tips. Because of the way we've set up the database, if a reporter wants to follow up on a tip that came in through a different newsroom, I connect them to make sure someone hasn't already followed up on that tip and to say, hey, is it okay if I give contact information uh, for this particular incident? The project launched in mid-January. Since then, it's collected about 3,000 tips, 400 of which have been verified, with hundreds more in the hopper. The coalition has published about 70 stories using the database. Some of them are about individual incidents, and others are about trends that have emerged from the data, like a report on school children using Trump's rhetoric to bully one another, people being harassed for speaking languages other than English, vandalism, and slurs. At Univision, it's allowed Jessica and her reporting partner, Maria Sanchez-Diaz, to track these anecdotal stories in a new way. 
and get leads on new problems. You know, it's an amazing tool because you can then follow up on those incidents and mark them as, you know, um, credible or inconclusive or sometimes they're just totally unrelated. On a normal day, Jessica and Maria will check the database to see if any new tips have come in. Rachel might also flag them if she sees something that they might find interesting. And that's how Jessica and Maria came upon the source for one of their first stories. A Colombian newspaper delivery woman submitted a tip to the Documenting Hate website. It was written in Spanish, so Rachel sent it along to Jessica and her colleagues at Univision. The woman, Maria Ramirez, delivers newspapers to about 800 homes across two towns in Massachusetts. In September 2016, Ramirez left a note for her customers on her route. Dear customer, she wrote, I hope you enjoyed this summer and also hope that you feel satisfied with my service. Wish you nothing but success, prosperity, and joy in everything you do. Happy Labor Day. She was not expecting the note she received from one of her customers in response. This person expressed that they didn't want her to have her job, that she shouldn't be working in the United States, um, you know, and that they hoped that she, you know, but essentially was deported. The unsigned letter read, in part, I am not satisfied with your job. Because of that, I am not sending you a tip. I hope when our new president is elected and America becomes great again, you won't have this job anymore. Sadly, you deserve nothing. Ramirez attached photos of the letters to the tip she submitted. It took several phone calls before Jessica and Maria finally got a hold of her. Jessica says that persistence is key with a lot of these cases. Oftentimes people will then say that they are happy to share, but they don't want to identify themselves. We've noticed that, uh, especially among, you know, our, our undocumented uh, population who are in a moment of terror in many cases, that sometimes they're too nervous to even continue talking to us, um, in which case, you know, we will respect that decision and not move forward. Some people, again, are very traumatized after experiencing these incidents. So we've been, that's been something that I think Maria and I have both learned is what's the appropriate way to handle those situations when a reader is, or when someone who's reported an incident to us rather is, you know, really struggling emotionally. So trying to be sensitive to that. Since the beginning of the project, Univision has published dozens of stories on incidents just like this one. Many of the situations never get violent. They never rise to the level of a crime. But they are still extremely painful to the people who experience them. There was one man who wrote uh, to us, the only thing I can say is that at that moment you feel like a despicable and useless being with the desire to disappear from the planet for a few minutes. You realize that being told even just something verbal, um, or even just a, like a, gl a glance or a look or a feeling that they get, this can go to the heart of someone's identity. This makes them, in some cases, question who they are, if they belong, you know, in the city where they live or in this country. Um, you know, it questioned choices that they've made in the past. You know, 
is it worth it to live here or why did I come here? You know, these are these are like deeply profound questions that I think these incidents make people, you know, yeah, really question the whole foundation of their of their being. Um, and I'm not sure that we sort of understood at the beginning of this project that even if it wasn't physical trauma, it was going to so deeply affect people. The interviews are often emotional, but giving people the opportunity to open up about their experiences can be its own form of therapy for victims and readers. People, when they speak to us about this, they cry. Um, you know, they get choked up. And so giving people sort of free reign to just share the range of their emotions, um, you know, just to sort of listen to them and, um, you know, let them work through that as they're sharing their experience with us, I think has been something really important. And I think having this project is a way for people to, to, to just find, like, something to identify with, a story um, that makes them, you know, think about an experience that they also face. But Jessica said this can also lead to challenges for reporters. She and her colleagues have to walk a fine line, making sure they're not perceived as advocates or lawyers. It's a distinction that's clear to many reporters, but not always easy for sources to understand. You know, a lot of people will write to us and say, like, what should I do? What can I do? You know, and we have to very respectfully tell them that we cannot advise them on what they should do. Um, but we are, you know, more than happy to share their story as a way to, um, to create awareness around the experience and what the result of that experience might be on an individual. so often, Jessica and Maria will take a moment to look at everything they've gathered with an eye for possible trends. And then, you know, after a few weeks, or in this case, a few months, you know, we would stand back and say, okay, well, what have we seen? And this was the first time that we were really like, you know what, a lot of people have said that they've been told to go back to their country. So let's dig into this. Let's look at this. You know, what does that insult actually mean? Where is it coming from? Um, who first said that? You know, if there's any way to know, or is this a, you know, is this historically unprecedented, uh, or is this something that's been going on a long time? The team did the same thing for reports of people being harassed for speaking a language other than English. For this, Jessica and Maria dug into the English-only campaigns in the United States. You know, we always try to, to say, okay, well, we're seeing these, um, these reports, but what does this actually mean? You know, is that, is that a, is that like an insult that's founded in reality? You know, when people say that, when people say, this is America, speak English, um, is that even true <laughs> legally? You know, do they, uh, do they have a sort of a, a reason to be saying that? And so I think, it, you know, asking those questions right off the bat is a really important way for us to contextualize these um, you know, these, these types of insults. What they found was a long history of pro-English campaigns in the United States. And then we sort of decided that it was incredibly important to include that history because we don't want um, people to read our story uh, and come to the conclusion that this is a phenomenon that's just coming out of the current moment. Because, Jessica says, all this hate 
the slurs, the threats, the vandalism. This isn't something new. I mean, this is a long, long history of pro-English ideas. Um, and so while, the, while in the current moment it might be sort of spiking, it's not you know, something that we can just look at as being an isolated you know, moment in time. It comes from, from many years of these ideas. And so we decided in the end that it was essential to include that for our readers. Univision has also published articles on other broader themes of hate incidents. They've covered harassment and assault on public transportation and bullying amongst children. Most of the time, the stories are disheartening, to say the least. But at times, there have been moments of compassion, a bright light at the end of a very dark tunnel. And that's what happened in the case of the Hispanic newspaper delivery woman, Maria Ramirez. We were able to sort of catch a glimpse of hope in her voice and in her, you know, rehashing of this whole experience, which had left her incredibly shaken and dramatized. When Ramirez received the hateful letter, she responded by writing a second letter to the customers on her route. This time, she included the hateful letter she'd received and told customers she was ready and open for feedback on how to improve. The community responded in a way she had not anticipated. Instead of sort of sending... um, more hate, they responded uh, in large part with really encouraging, hopeful messages of support for her and that she did a great job. Jessica says it's these moments that give journalists the opportunity to tell a slightly different story. That's something that, you know, as journalists, we should continue to look for in these stories is that they can be really bad, but, you know, what comes out of them? Anything positive, you know, does... You know, are there any words of support shared by others? Is there a, a new law or new uh, ordinance or new something that comes out that maybe hopes to actually change something? Um, was there a police officer who uh, showed a compassionate, you know, side of his or her personality to a victim? You know, what is it that we can also take from these stories rather than just the horrible, you know, part? which is the hate part. Um, And oftentimes you'll find that there is something positive on the other side. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to get involved with the Documenting Hate Project, either as a journalist or someone sharing their story, visit documentinghate.com or check out our episode notes for a link. We'll also have links to read the dozens of articles produced by the Documenting Hate Coalition. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. And if you like the show, consider leaving a review. This helps introduce new listeners to the podcast and allows you to slather praise on the host. My name is spelled B-L-A-K-E. The IRE Radio podcast is recorded in the studios of KBIA at the University of Missouri. Emily Hopkins reported this story. Sarah Hutchins is our editor. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Blake Nelson.
Podcast.